just had a baby um um uh what do you call them decaffeinated oh, oh. <laughs> that's charming isn't it delightfully pleasant that is actually yeah that's actually quite pleasant <laughs> that's 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 refreshing one would say it's damn cute move on over for the good jokes on this network ladies and gents oh my <laughs> but Burns i'm and <laughs> welcome to contagious curiosity everybody if you can't already tell you're with cat and laney i'm laney and i'm cat and we are bringing you an art episode today it's been a hot minute so we're bringing it back bringing it yeah. back to the arts uh. but in i think traditional spooky season uh decorum we are starting off gently and then i think that we're gonna i think we're gonna pound it deep into the into the scary holes that are your bodies mm-hmm. so damn um, straight I'm, I'm really looking forward to the next all of the deep that we have planned crevices oh, we're gonna get up in there the we're gonna crevasses. get into your we're gonna get into your horror crevasse <laughs> we're gonna sit there how- we're gonna nest in there <laughs> like 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 a bird nest like like a putrid festering bird nest of information yeah oh i was thinking more of you know like just like you know comfort nesting i'm just gonna i'm gonna bring all my snacks and all my comfort <laughs> foods into your horror crevasses and i'm gonna live in there i'm gonna be real comfy you're not yeah, gonna be I'm able gonna to get rid of me, me. i'm gonna yeah. <laughs> I, like how, I like how you were like well if i'm gonna if i have to live here i'm gonna make it comfortable and i'm gonna like i'm just gonna haunt their whole bodies yeah. i'm gonna make it nasty i'm gonna make it smell your neighbors are gonna wonder if you're dead <laughs> it's because we love you that well, we're doing this it comes from a place of sincerity yeah i mean it does it does it does, it does. Yeah. you know you're welcome <laughs> Oh man, I I felt I think I told you like I in class the other day our teacher went around our professor was asking us, you know, like what makes you an individual and separate from everybody else in this class? And everybody was going around and I was on the back row, so I was one of the last people to go and I was like, oh, well, it's well, kind of ideal, I that's had, ideal. I had a radio show and now it's kind of morphed into a podcast that I'm doing with my best friend and a bunch of people are just like, oh, awesome. Give me like, what's the names? We'll listen to it and stuff. So shout out to Dr. Rickenbacker's class if you guys are, are listening at all. So appreciate you. And oh, well, uh, a, don't judge me. name. <laughs> she's fantastic. Dr. I Rickenbacker. Am, mm-hmm. Yeah, she's she's really great. I'm I'm very happy to be in her class. She's hilarious, too. I'm into it. I'm very into oh, it. And it's that- the only class I have on campus, too. So it's such, like, a beautiful welcome back to school. This is such a, like, great energizing way to be getting back into education and everything. And I've missed it. I've missed being a student so much. And I, I, yeah, it's teachers I, like this that make me thankful to be, you know, an adult learner, too. I, I love it. I will say that my experience at college was a lot different than in high school. Now, and I knew that difference. I knew that it was going to be a different feeling going into college. And the reason I felt that way was because it's still something, it's my environment that I control. These are my choices. If I want to succeed, that's, that's the, the work that I put in will help me to succeed. And I'm at least choosing what I get to do. And mm-hmm. it's, you, you get to focus in on, on, on personal interests and growth and 
So I, I enjoyed that. And also, you don't have to talk to anybody. I like that you do. Me, I, I took things so seriously. It's like how I take my job. I go in, I do my job. I do just enough to be an excellent worker and stay just below anybody's shit bar. And then I leave. I don't take it home with me when my partner's asking like, well, you know, how was work? How was it going? And I was like, it was good. So uh, anyways, <laughs> so later on, this is, uh, I'm going to be talking to, I got to talk to a lady about something. Like I just, yeah. I don't, I don't want to talk about it. And so I get to, when I get to college, well, I see- also kind of feel the same way. I just shut up and stay to the side. This is why I'm doing college for a second time, because the first time was balls to the walls, social <laughs> experiment, like class work. I mean, I, because I had to work full time and go to school full time and learning to be not just an adult, but an, a human being, an independent human being who nobody was telling me no or putting limits on me in any way. I was responsible for that. And I was not good at that at that yeah, time. I, and so there was, I, I did not take school seriously enough. And it is very unfortunate because I'm sure there's a lot more I could have gotten out of my first education than I did. However, I wouldn't change anything. I love my first college experience. I love the people I was with and the times I had. But, you know, it, it would be nice if all of that student loan debt was more, you know, put to a, a better cause. I feel that's I think, okay. I think it's like, it's like a double whammy for you because although I remember watching you go through your experience and I was very happy for you. I was living like vicariously oh, having a great through time. you. Yeah, it, but you know, and the, also you got to live in a town that was... A quite a quite in a quite a shift you know like some people they move to their local big city and you chose like a, a, a large city mentality in a small town yes yeah and oh, yeah the people were quite incredible the the environment itself burlington man yeah the, just the aura that surrounded that city it, it the people that find their self pulled there like it's a certain it's a certain breed of people they're going to wind up there, and it's definitely a certain breed of people that wound up at Burlington College, specifically. It was all of those outcasts that were like, here we go, here's a nice little... You know, we always joked that it was the island of misfit toys, because none of us really fit in anywhere else, well, that's but why we fit I, in so well with each other. That's why I was describing to you the idea of it being a double whammy, because you went there, you had this experience, you got your education, and then it, it, it kind of, in the end... You were a part of a group of students who didn't get, like, reimbursed. Like, remember, like, wasn't there a whole thing about, like, how... There's a class action lawsuit that's still underway. Yes. Those things take forever. So, I mean, like, there's, there's there's a whole lot of history. I would love to someday <laughs> dive into that history and make that, honestly, an entire episode about everything that happened. Because what happened at the Catholic Diocese, which is the, what, where the college eventually moved into, is that giant, beautiful brick building was an orphanage. And there was... Oh, so pretty. A lot of horror that happened within those walls, like Mm. murder and death and horrible abuse to children and the mentally ill. And it's very dark history. And then for everything that happened with the college and the fact that it is, oh, it's just, there's there's a lot of story there. So eventually, Eventually, as my research skills get better. I would love to hear about it. Yeah, when things... And I get, you know, more proficient with everything. And as the podcast goes and we grow and everything that it's, it's something that I don't want to take lightly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just so going to go yeah. ahead and say that right now. Yeah. No, no, no. It's very serious. Very yeah. Serious. <laughs> I want it to be done right. Rare. So 
Um, uh, blah, 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 blah. I was going to say words and then they all just got jumbled in my mouth. I was just going to, I was going to tell you what I was drinking today since we're doing, <laughs> since the artist that I'm covering today has done a lot of experimental and kind of crazy, ridiculous work with a whole bunch of horror objects. Um, I'm drinking the Voodoo Ranger Experimental IPA. And of course... It's delicious because everything Voodoo Ranger does is fucking delicious. So, cheers. Voodoo Ranger, isn't that like, is that like one of those, um, is it a super hoppy, hoppy beer? Uh, it depends. They make so many different kinds. Like, I, I, one of their juice ones is really good. Like, juicy, um, hazy IPA is really tasty. They have a whole bunch. They just, uh, their um, pumpkin... Atomic Pumpkin just came out recently and is back in the stores around here anyway. All, all of the pumpkins really good. Definitely ba- is definitely back. Yeah, all of that's around here too. Um, there's like f- I didn't realize that there were like four different kinds of pumpkin head or pumpkin flavored beers that apparently Shipyard make. Oh, yeah. Because there's like, we were talking about this last night, there's like pumpkin ice cream beer that's flavored as like a sweet you know, desserty beer, and then there's, like, the pumpkin spice beer, which is more earthy and, you know, got that, that spice to it instead of just the sweet pumpkin pie or pumpkin ice cream type qualities. Ooh. 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 I like the spice version better. The, the spice. Anyway, what are you drinking? So, um, I kept it actually pretty interesting. I kept it with seltzer water and a Miller Lite. Mm, there you I go. I did. I did. I kept it simple like that. Um, the seltzer water, really, it's it was one of Edward Gorey's favorite uh, beverages, so I thought it would pair well with this. He always liked the carbonated bevs, and he was always caught with like sparkling water everywhere that he went. So, and then of course <laughs> just Miller because, well, because, <laughs> because cracked open like three right. the, the seltzer was <laughs> not miller this the seltzer oh i was gonna say damn before it started i was like <laughs> dude i go through i every time we go to the grocery store i have to pick up four or five different cases of seltzer because i just i go through them so fucking fast i don't like regular water so it's the only way i can get like pure water into my body and not Seriously? hate myself for me yeah, it's i ice don't water. like water ice water i don't like man. it I like filling the ice all the way to the brim and then the water mm-hmm. just to the brim and waiting like exactly 47 seconds and then just pounding it down. That feeling that it just is traveling down my tubes all chilled like. Oh, it's, it's oh I'm too it's sensitive like, for that stuff. It hurts my teeth. What my about baby something teeth? warm? What if you're cold and you feel that coffee go down? For the oh, I love time? that. That's like yeah. a hot toddy. Oh. Mm, so you got the like the actual warmth of the drink itself, then the like heat of the whiskey as it goes down, and then that maple syrup or honey, and just oh, 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 so have you ever good. had drambuie? Mm. No, I don't think so. It's it's one of those beverages that you just kind of you sip on, and it's a, it's got a honey in it, and so you you sip on the shot almost, and you can yep. feel it like travel like the way that it like kind of burns on its way down. It's it's oh, it's actually quite quite remarkable. Oh, I did forget to add that I'm pairing my beer today. It has nothing to do with our episode, but I am pairing it with a glazed donut mm. <laughs> because that's what a strong IPA should be paired with. You know what mine's nice paired with? Donut. Kettle corn. What? Hey, there we go. Kettle corn. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> All right, so let's get into it. We are both covering an artist today, and we are. Cat is gonna go first. I'm pretty stoked. I don't know anything really about this artist, so it's gonna be fun. Yeah. So to rein in uh, the start of spooky season, I wanted to talk about Edward Gorey, um, and the reason I chose Edward Gorey is because when I was growing up, I, I was I was going through a phase just around the time that I started noticing a lot of things being available, like Hot Topic, or if you mm. go online and you're, you know, trying to go to, like, these alt sites, goth sites, or any of these kinds of places, and you were trying to, like, in the early age of ordering things online, and you could you used to be able to send a check through the mail to pay for things on eBay. Oh, and yeah. So I remember, I remember at this time going through my goth phase, which then later turned into a scene kid phase, and... um the very few times that I was allowed to, uh, or that I went to the mall because it was quite far away from where we grew up. Um, I used to see some of the merchandise based around this artist and I was lucky enough to, I think I was like 17 or 18 and I was like buying stuff off of eBay and I bought one of his books and it's been one of my favorite books. And it always made me think of just how quirky and fun, like just simple pen drawings are and how dark and twisted they are as well when coming from the right person. So he described himself as a writer, but he was more of an illustrator because in a lot of his books, he didn't use words necessarily, but Mm -hmm. he he would focus on like an image and he might like repeat that image page after page after page with subtle changes, but somehow (laughs) it would convey this like, utter sadness like yep this doom of depression and you're just like for some reason you're like this is what i need i need to feel this darkness like look how sad it is oh you know it's like listening to a sad song over and over again so i know it a lot of his a lot of his illustration was just like dry and dark um but simple so you know as i would describe it you know if you're floating around your your local hot topic in the early 2000s you might have stumbled upon some quirky short stories and macabre like children's books featuring edwardian like characters and seemingly odd inanimate objects for pages on end if this doesn't ring a bell you might have also noticed simplistic yet dark illustrations paired alongside famous poetry and stories from classes from classics such as charles dickens samuel beckett and hilaire belloc's cautionary tales for children did you ever remember reading that book? Did you ever read? Cautionary Tales for Children? I don't yeah. know. I love that one. It's I have you remember Cautionary's Tale from it the It does look Yes, yes. It does look very, 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 very Yes. Mm-hmm. But my I had a German version that was very dark that's well it's uh, german like messed up well i know exactly but like there was one about a a guy who would a little boy who was stealing and there was this guy that looked like a jester like he was dressed like a jester that comes prancing literally because his legs are splayed out so he's like in the air with these giant shears and he cuts (gasps) the tips of the little boy's thumbs off and it's just like a picture of the little boy sitting there with like bleeding thumbs yeah and i I, 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 it was before I could read and just flipping through those books and I'm 
didn't know what the fuck the word said, but I knew every story in that book and what it was about. Like another was a little girl who refused to eat her porridge or dinner or whatever. And she had like two little cats around and her parents refused to let her stand up unless she finished her food. And then she just died. She (laughs) wasted away. And then at the end of that tiny little story, there's just a gravestone and the two cats are just perched on top of the gravestone. Because she died from starvation. Just a fucked up fucking book. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, and this was around like it's when similar. Shel Silverstein was like also booming and you know was was everywhere yes. and all of our friends and family you know always had one of, one or two of these books lying around, and there was just something so quirky, and so fascinating and so terrifying. It's like it's like watching a you know like why do we watch horror movies? Why do we like to be yep. scared? So why do we look at these dark comics and feel joy still from like the, the sadness and. Yeah. Yep. anguish that sometimes but it's also the fun it's funny i mean yeah it's the sense of humor too because that's where the depending on the illustration so there's a difference between what you're describing and say uh the uh scary stories the scary stories oh, yeah. you tell in the dark or something yep. there's a three there's a three book series and so yeah, there's scary, like that scary, illustrative yeah. difference between like which i personally is the kind that i like to explore with i like to explore that like dark and stringy and like when things mm. are like the slender manny aspect of things and you well, can see like the fine two, details of like the grotesque features my two thigh tattoos that i have i love the style in which they're done and the artist who did them because his are always from the moment i met him always reminded me of scary stories to tell in the dark and i just they're so unique and i, I would house those all of those like artistic styles kind of like in the same bubble but are very very different from each other like you can i don't know i can pick out a scary stories to tell in the dark from like an edward gory but they are they have like the same like mm. i don't know well they come know. they have that same they have the, motion, the, the same that, chest like, feel I'm, like rubbing my fingers together feel. you know like the same mm. the same <laughs> chest feel yeah it's like it, it hold, you hold it here and it's a little uncomfortable you know I love. you know what you should do if you know hmm. you should you should have it in your will that when you die that that part of your body those tattoos all of your tattoos all of be my tattoos stripped yep. and 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 you should be tanned you know they should be cleaned and tanned <laughs> and passed you. along for ge- well uh, who's <laughs> i should just start getting you know like maui from moana how it tells stories <laughs> yeah like across i'm just gonna start getting those types of tattoos and that's what my my descendants will have to pass down like it i'll make it in my will that it is forbidden to speak of me you can only speak of me yeah. through my skin patches that have been passed down for generations <laughs> you know that seems pretty legit actually that seems like a good place to start i've heard crazy i actually i haven't necessarily heard crazier but it competes with crazy that's it's very it competes good with crazy that's good that's very good that's very good um i completely lost my train of thought of what i was going to say because <laughs> i immediately just imagined people just sitting down just passing like tablets of like just my yes. skin but it's like tapestries <laughs> oh we praise the mighty the, the mighty the mighty flesh the mighty flesh palace every june 19th yeah every birthday <laughs> Oh, it sounds very Jeepers Creepers, I suppose. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Buh. Buh. Oh, God. So if any of this is familiar or even sparks the subtle most curiosity, you might have found yourself enjoying the talents and treasures of Edward Gorey. As the last few decades of his life, merchandise obviously became quite popular, with stuffed dolls, cups, stickers, posters, and other items available at small malls around the United States. And that is where a young cat found him on a Hot Topic shelf. 
<laughs> so I mean, it's so I, that's I, so going back to the original point. This is why I chose this artist when I was thinking of just somebody dark because I didn't think of horror. I just thought of somber in a way. Mm-hmm. And create and the and the, the creativity that he brought to you know uh, critical thinking when you're looking at work. So he once told an interviewer, "The facts of my life are so few, tedious, and irrelevant to anything else. There is no point in getting into them." Which well, I'm so down. glad we're doing an episode on him. Uh huh. That's why it was so funny because I was like, "So man, you know, this is going to be an interesting one because he was quite a simple man." Which, though, should reduce his biography to born February 22nd, 1925, Chicago, died April 15th, 20, <laughs> 2000, Barnstable, Mass. With a mention of his idiosyncratic writings and drawings, there's no overt drama in Gory's history and no fraught relationships. Instead, there's an, there's an astonishing dedication to work, as well as to arcane films, ballet, TV sitcoms, cats and collecting books, used toys, and connections with some of the most significant literal uh, literary figures of his generation. Awesome. Yeah. He was raised mainly in and near Chicago, where he attended the Francis W. Parker School with his c- close friend, future abstract expressionist painter, Joan Mitchell. His earliest works, apart from drawings of sausage-like trains, made one and a half, that he made at one and a half, were illustrations for his elementary school yearbook. Gorey's precocity included teaching himself to read at three. Precocity. Precocity. Yeah. Graduating <laughs> from high school at 17, in 1942, he enrolled for one semester at the Art Institute of Chicago, his only art training. He spent 1943 to 1946 serving in World War II, mostly at the Dugway Proving Ground in Utah. Every time I pick up a paper and I see that 12,000 more sheep died mysteriously in Utah, Gory told Dick Cavett in 1977, I think, oh, they're at it again. This statement is specifically referring to, because I had to look this up, the statement is specifically referring to the Dugway sheep incident or the Skull Valley sheep kill where chemical and biological warfare programs at the Dugway Proving Ground in Utah connected to United States Army killed 6,000 sheep on ranches near the base and the popular Mm. explanation blamed army testing of chemical weapons for the incident although alternative explanations have been offered a report commissioned by Air Force press officer Jesse Stay and first made public in 1998, was called the first documented admission from the army that a nerve agent killed the sheep at Skull Valley. There you go. That was an interesting pull on. Gory attended, yeah, he attended Harvard University from 1946 to 1950, majoring in French literature, studying with John Ciardi and rooming with the Frank O'Hara, both American poets. Gory's earliest illustrations date from this period, when he also designed sets, directed and wrote for the Poets Theater, along with O'Hara, John Ashby, Ashbery, Alison Lurie, and Violet Lang, among others, his eccentrically dressed persona with long overcoats, tennis shoes, clanking large jewelry, and eventually <laughs> a luxuriant beard, was established at Harvard. In 19... Now, just imagine this. Did you, did you, have you seen a picture of this man? Oh, I have, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Oh. When Gorey moved to New York uh, to work at Doubleday's new Anchor Books division, eventually designing more than 50 distinctive covers and achieving recognition for his illustrations, he worked for various publishing houses until turning freelance in the mid-1960s. 
He also began writing and illustrating his own books. Publishing in 1953, the first of what would be more than a hundred small enigmatic volumes, the, un the Unstrung Harp, the illustrated story of the travels of a novelist. While Glory claimed that he knew nothing about being a writer at the time, Graham Greene called The Unstrung Harp the best novel ever written about a novelist, and I ought to know. Aww. <laughs> Partly because of the introductions to the public television series Mystery, created with the animator Derek Lamb and his team in 1980 and still in use, Gory is best known to the Wilder public for his drawings. In his books, which chronicle a vaguely Edwardian world of patriarchs in ankle-length overcoats, mustachioed men in padded dressing gowns, wantons with nodding plumes, uniformed housemaids, and children in sailor suits and pinafores, images carrying the ambiguous narratives as much as the text. His often relentlessly cross-hatched, inventively patterned pen and ink drawings can be obsessively detailed, full of small, little tiny events that we must work hard to discover, or, as in the 1963 ma masterpiece The West Wing, which is devoid of text, miracles of suggestive economy. Yet Gorey always depicted himself as a writer, not as an artist. He described his books as Victorian novels all scrunched up. <laughs> In New York, Gorey soon became a passionate admirer of the New York City Ballet and George uh, Balanchang, whom he described as the greatest influence on me. Everything he ever said about art, in the larger sense, was only too true. Gorey attended every performance in all of Balanchine's ballets until the choreographer's death in 1983. That year, wow. Gorey, who had divided his time between Midtown Manhattan and Cape Cod, summering with family, moved permanently to the Cape an act of aestheticism worthy of Oscar Wilde, according to Stephen mm. Schiff in the New Yorker profile. An equally important New York connection was with the Gotham Book Mart. Now, this is important, too, because the Gotham Book Mart is pretty much where he started, like, uh, dis like um, distributing everything, and that's where, like, like, a, like a small, like, subculture started to form. Mm -hmm. So... Gory became a close friend of the founder, Francis Steloff, and her successor, Andreas Brown. Gotham Bookmart became a main source of Gory's books, especially after 1962, when he established his private imprint, the Fantod Pre Press. Gotham occasionally published his books, arranged for him to illustrate works by Samuel Beckett and John Updike, as well as many others, and showed his work regularly in the bookstore's art gallery, including his limited edition prints, especially those made in the 1980s and 1990s, when he worked extensively with the Brewster Mass printmaking, uh, printmaker Emily Trevor. Gorey remained irredeemably American, despite the apparently English setting of many of his books. Only <laughs> his, trip to, his only trip to Europe was to the Scottish Islands, the Shetlands, the, is it the Hebrides? Hebrides? I don't know. Hebrides and, and the Orkneys. He described not seeing the Loch Ness Monster as the great tragedy of his life. Oh, poor guy. But his international reputation steadily grew as books were translated. In 1972, Amphigory, an anthology of 15 works, was published, followed over the next few years by Amphigory 2, T-O-O, Amphigory <laughs> also, and Amphigory again. <laughs> 
Gore's long Amazing. interest in book design led to his experiments with unconventional formats, including miniatures, pop-up books, postcards, and a collection of movable parts. As Gorey told Lisa Solid of the Boston Globe, ideally, if anything were any good, it would be indescri indescribable. <laughs> Gorey <laughs> classified his own work as literary nonsense, the genre made most famous by Lewis Carroll and Edward Lear. A ferocious reader and a collector of everything from obscure Victorian novels to translations of the, Thai, the tale of Genji, from the symbolist poetry to books on napkin folding to the works of Carl Jung, Jung and George uh, Gerhief, and apparently everything in between. Gori was also a connoisseur of popular television programs and obscure films. He had an encyclopedic knowledge of Japanese cinema and the work of pioneers such as Louis, uh, uh, oh gosh, this is going to be terrible. Fulad, Fulade, 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 that's how you say it. The inventor of the serial thriller, whose silent films such as the Fantoma series, clearly from Gory's interiors and street scenes. He seemed to have so thoroughly internalized an astonishingly wider range of sources that we can find uh, we can find allusions in his books to the works of Max Ernst, Paul Klee, police photographers, and the 19th century illustrators, along with flavors of Buster Keaton's films, Lewis Carroll's, and I.V. Compton Burnett's books, Kub uh, Kabuki Theater, and a lot more including parodies of Agatha Christie's Mysteries and the pseudonyms French, uh, French pornographer Pauline Regais, the story of O'Gory that claimed he knew a little bit about a lot of things. <laughs> a disclaimer that he believed his extraordinarily well-furnished mind and his depth of knowledge uh, of these sort of subjects. <laughs> Makes me think of Nick. When, they describe, like, when people describe him, they just describe him as like a, a man of such character, but without much going on like <laughs> you know like <laughs> that's good like he's strong he's strong he's like <laughs> he has a presence he has this ins insane presence but such mystery that so but because nothing is really apparent and on the surface but yes yeah he's just it's all underneath he, waiting for you to just ask the right questions yeah just if you ask the right questions the man lights up and doesn't stop talking <laughs> if you don't ask the right questions he's just going to stare off into the distance yes, silently looking that's what like I he's imagine. angry we went out to um see my friend's dad who plays in a fish cover band and we <laughs> we went to a bar and I, love um, I met up with you know her mom and stuff because they were like a second family when I was in school. I met them the first day of freshman year of college, and I mean they've slept on our couches. They've spent weekends with us. I've I go and visit them obviously when she's not even around. So like I love them. They're f fucking great people. I love them. I love and I was them. trying to explain Nick and like get them prepared and it's funny because maddie was just like he, he's basically like the version of her husband just in a different font they're very similar they're just in a different font that's and a so fantastic like eventually her mom was just like i'm so sorry you look so miserable and he looks at me and is like did you not explain to her this is just my face you know he was joking of course and it's just like <laughs> Oh, so good. So good. We had a great time. Oh, I was born this way. 
I say this all the time. This is, like, I try and explain to people because I'm just like, there's me. Hey, what's up in the world? And, and then there's Nick. And I'm like, no, he's crazy too. You just have to tap into it. I know. It, once again, it's the, it's, you have to say the right things. And then yeah. he's like, well, in fact, did you know? <laughs> let me just talk to you for an hour and then not let you talk at all. I haven't oh, said a word in twenty hours, but let me just—he'll let—he'll—he'll he'll <laughs> let me talk, but he—he's already ready to to be disappointed by what I'm about to say because it's—it's <laughs> already wrong. It's already—that's <laughs> why I just end up fucking with him and saying stupid things, yep. just like yep. going off subject. Or I'm a master of changing the subject in general. I've, that's just my—that was my job for so many years too—is redirection, redirection. Yes. So yeah. you know, I just got good at being like anyway. <laughs> how about those dolphins <laughs> oh god anyway <laughs> anyway all right so gory had been interested in theater since his harvard days and became involved in the new york off-broadway productions based on his work while mounting his own experimental place with amateur actors and sometimes puppets on the cape during the summer in 1973, a production of Dracula that he designed for a small Nantucket theater attracted enough attention that in 1977, it opened on Broadway as Edward Gorey's Dracula, a Tony Award-winning success that ran for almost three years and toured internationally. In 1979, the royalties from Dracula permitted Gorey to purchase a 200-year-old 200 200 sea captain's house in Yarmouth Port, Mass., his home for the rest of his life. And these pictures are gorgeous. It's actually where um, the Edward Gorey like house and trust is. Like you can go there and nice. visit and see his works and everything. It's it's a small little museum. It's like what we have up here for uh, Margaret Chase Smith, where you can just yep, walk yep. into her house and see all the her like her accomplishments, and then you can like get a tour through her actual home and where she slept. And I think it's a fascinating idea to when you think about like how you preserve that kind of history, mm-hmm. and also. It's just nice to, it's literally going back in time. And as we modernize our own homes, walking into... It's the Ed Gein approach. Yeah, and walking in, like, with Margaret <laughs> Chase Smith, like, walking into her home, I'm, like, I'm teleported back to the 50s, like, authentically. Yeah. I love it. But, anyways. Uh, the, the, the play, though, Edward Gore's Dracula just reminds me of forgetting Sarah Marshall. <clears throat> oh, every <laughs> time. Ah, 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 yeah. <laughs> blood. Blood. <laughs> oh, I love that movie. I also get, uh, now I have just the piano. The the <laughs> Exactly. That's that's exactly the, what's stuck in my head right now. And the, that moment he looks and he very bef- like right before he says <laughs> It's getting really hard. <laughs> yeah. And if I see I'm that thing, bullshit, 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 bullshit. I love that movie. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Oh God. <sighs> but yes, yeah. The the Dracula. Oh yes, because at the end though, they show the Dracula puppet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's. All I was just gonna say, there's puppets. I forgot. They're about all puppets. The <laughs> it was really well done. I would, I would, I would pay a lot of money to see that. Oh God. Um. Okay. So yeah. So he purchased the house in uh, Yarmouth Port, Mass. And that's where he was for the rest of his life. It was filled with a constantly growing collection of more than 20,000 books, um, odd bits of iron, rock, and miscellaneous flea market finds, along with carefully selected collections of paintings by Albert York, drawings by Balthus Pierre Bernard, Charles Birchfeld, 
George Harriman and Eduard Villard. Photographs by Eugene Atget and 19th century sandpaper pictures. All of which reverberated oh. in various ways in his own work. So like, you know, they, they kind of resembled his aesthetic and style. But I this that description, like this literally describes every every old house in New England. Is Yep. <laughs> books yep. and bits of iron and rocks and flea market finds and like well you see i found past. this when i was walking in the wood one day don't know what it belongs to but it's rusted <laughs> and i found it so it's here now <laughs> somebody took somebody took the acorn when i when i was living with my old roommate somebody took the acorn off the mantle and threw it outside because they thought it was there accidentally <gasps> and i'm like how the fuck is an acorn gonna get inside and on the mantle accidentally that put it back. Me. Put it back. My, my mom, when she came to visit us in college, there was like, there was trash that was on the the coffee table, and she cleaned because I was at work at the time. And she cleaned up, and I came back, and all of the trash was back exactly where it was before. She was like, I didn't know if it was part of an art project or not, so I just left it there, and I tried to put it back exactly where I found it. It was just like bits of rolling paper and like probably like tobacco from spliffs being rolled. <laughs> and like just you know like i mean clumps of cat hair there was it was nothing but trash but like the surface of the table had been wiped down and clean but all of the little bits of trash and she's just like i just didn't want to ruin anybody's day <laughs> to be fair to be fair where we were you were in going you, yeah where you were yeah. going to school i would also go is this can here behind the couch <laughs> Part of this is a bigger picture. <laughs> Michaela had a whole like a piece that she did. It was later on. It wasn't at Burlington, but it was um, based off of Shel Silverstein poems. And one of the the pieces she did was of uh, Sylvia Stout won't throw the or won't take the garbage out. And so she had a necklace that she made out of um, orange peel rinds. Yeah. And it was and like just bits of trash and things like that everywhere. So yeah, it's not out of the realm <laughs> that we would use scraps and compost and literal I, trash. I spent real, real fucking time on two different uh, things in high school, so that I could wear them to school. One, uh, duct tape leggings. Okay, flared, gross, Fl- flared duct tape. Sounds so constricting. No, um, um, leg warmers. Oh, so oh, oh, oh. so they. They were designed and they were purple and silver. And I worked all night. I didn't go to bed so that I could wear them to school the next day. I literally showed up with these flared. Okay, so the gut went, went it went right below my knee, and then they were it was patchworked and they were thick, and they even had the bit of a ruffle to it because flared jeans were all the rage in the early two thousands. Oh yeah, they were. And so I had them, and then I had like leggings on, and then I had a skirt, and then I had like I always had like a button up. Some kind of button up that I had like all these tears in and that I probably did some some stupid shit with my hair and wore a pound of like eye shadow. Yeah, we need to find those pictures. We need to get a collection (laughs) of our of our grimy (laughs) high school days. You weren't even grimy. You were you weren't grimy at all. I was you were eccentric and and out there and wild and colorful. That's not no, but your true. your aesthetic wasn't grime. Oh, you, you had that yes. like scene. I had a little more because I I was in my like full blown hippie grime stage. So there was I was like had a sheen of grime, but not like gross wook grime. 
You know, oh, it I know was the more difference. just like oh, I know the difference. You never There's a very that. large difference. Not yeah, once. I, I once not once did I adopt the Wook life. I I once saw a friend who adopted the Wook life approach me from at least thirty feet away, and her arms went up. And she went out to like reach for me and like walk like in a dramatic way towards me. I could smell her. I felt like something mm-hmm. had wafted in behind her, and just like I was like, I'm not entirely ready for this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, there was I, there. Oh, plenty of times. I've yeah. made, I've I've. Well, I have some stories, but that might just be for a different time. I think what, that's of, a different podcast. Yeah, I think that's, that's a different, different podcast. <laughs> Regardless, <laughs> though. Oof. No, and also you never smelled. You, know, you were one of those people that never really had an odor, anyway. So I, I remember that specifically. You were just, it just didn't happen. Yeah. Well, that yeah. You, you, got, you probably would just dive in the river somewhere and at least yeah. like, freshen off. It didn't know? really matter what time of year either. Oh, there's so many cold swims. It was the lake because you spent a lot of time. You spent a lot of time on the lake, didn't you? Yep. Oh, just, just about every waking moment when we weren't in school. I did too. Beautiful. Oh. Anyway, so much fun. Those theater camps would have been a blast. Yeah, (laughs) it had to do. It came back to theater. It all came back. It all came. It came back to theater. (laughs) Oh, okay. (sighs) So, Gory has become an iconic figure in goth subculture. Events themed on his works and decorated in his characteristic Mm -hmm. style are common. Are common in the more Victorian-styled elements of the subculture. Notably, the Edwardian costume balls held annually in San Francisco and Los Angeles, which include performances based on his works. The Edwardian, in this case, though, however, refers to the Edwardian, not the Edwardian period, but more towards the Ed Gorey aspect. It became his own aesthetic and style. So Edwardian doesn't, it's not Queen Victoria or Queen or King Mm -hmm. Edward era. So it was more kind of shifted. I love it. Even though it still had Victorian aspect to it. Um, whose characters were depicted wearing fashion styles ranging from the mid-19th century to the 1930s. He wrote under a few pseudonyms that I find absolutely necessary to share here. Ogdred Weary was one of the pseudonyms he used for The Curious Sofa and The Beastly Baby. E.G. Deadworry, the pseudonym he used to write The Audrey Gore Legacy and his grandson G.E. Deadworry. Mrs. Regira Dowdy, which was used to write The Pious Infant, The Izzard Book, and, of course, Edward Pig wrote the, un- <laughs> the uh, untitled book. <laughs> That's amazing. He was a dedicated animal lover and an advocate of animal welfare. Gory described himself as a Taoist and would move worms off of the wet pavement to keep them from being stepped on. He lived, uh, with, uh, he lived lifelong with multiple cats and is quoted saying, it's very interesting. Sharing a house with a group of people who obviously see things, hear things, and think things in a vastly different way. Gorey left his estate to the Edward Gorey Charitable Trust, which contributes to agencies supporting the welfare of cats, dogs, whales, birds, bats, insects, and invertebrates. Like, come on. Awesome, right? After his it. death in uh, 2000, at 75, Gorey's Cape Cod home in on the Yarmouth Port Common was converted into the Edward Gorey House, a museum who profits and programs benefit animal rights and literacy programs. It is open from mid-April through December with an annually changing uh, exhibition and permanent displays. A poison ivy vine that infiltrated the living room window causing, uh, uh, 
casing during Gory's occupancy of the house has been removed. I like how this was on their website themselves that that's what they put. Like, you know, in case you were here when the poison ivy was in the house, it's gone now. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. (laughs) Among the authors influenced by Gory's work is Daniel Handler, who is under the pseudonym Lemony Snicket, wrote the Gothic children's book series, A Series of Unfortunate Events. Shortly before Gory's death, Handler sent a copy of the series' first two novels to him with a letter saying how much he admired his work and how much he had hoped that he would forgive him for what he had stolen from him. Oh, no. Which is interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Director Mark Romanek's music video for the Nine Inch Nail song The Perfect Drug was designed specifically to resemble a Gory book. With familiar gory elements, including oversized urns, topiary plants, and a glum, pale character in full Edwardian costume. What was the name of that song? The Perfect Drug. That's fucking hilarious. Okay. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Because but that Nine Inch Nails oversized. also has w- another one of their music videos was influenced by my artist. They really? have an entire mu- Yeah. Yeah, that's closer. Was all um, based no on way. Like, his work. Yeah. Oh, I could see that. I like, could see that. An, almost. There's one. There's one that's one to one, like comparison. Oh, so, oh, that's that's really cool. I love it. I love that Nine Inch Nails took both of. <laughs> that's fucking hilarious. That's beautiful. <laughs> I love it. Same Christmas. So yeah. Movies. So there you go. So and we're gonna. I'm gonna include some uh, some of his artwork up on on the, on the Instagrams. The Instagrams. I gotta figure out how to do like um one of those like I, uh, it shades the picture and like you must prove that you're over a certain age, like to see uh, the picture. Do you know? I don't know how to do that on Instagram. A sensor warning we'll have to or like out an age yeah. restriction warning. Yeah, you know where it kind of like blurs out warning. some of the photos. They do that. The no, where it like the the app itself will blur out the picture until you click on it. And oh, I don't, I don't know, show. I didn't know that at all. Uh, yeah, I, a lot of the medical um, accounts that I follow, you have to click on it to view the the picture because it'll blur you know, it out. I do follow a plastic surgeon center uh, for like weight loss, and uh, you know what? I just re- I thought that that was just something that they did themselves. That's what I'm saying. I think we need. I need to figure out how to do that for my artist's work because there's almost nothing that oh, is Pixlr. not censored. <laughs> Pic- Pixlr, I can do it for okay. you. Yeah, the Pixlr app has a has a pixelate um, button, and, and it, you can like tap on a certain area, and it pixelates it or blurs. I pref- pixelate is kind of I think what you're talking about, right? And, but that would do it permanently. I just mean like never mind. We'll talk. Oh, you will, is, you will- this is post work. Oh, we don't no, need to be talking is- about this. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I have, I, you know, I, you know, when you do something, just do something the first time. They say, right? Yeah, <laughs> but just maybe not on air. I don't know what that has yeah, to do. Yeah, I suppose. So. Oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Sweet. I'm that was excited. awesome. I'm excited to hear about your fella. Okay. Yeah. Let's dive into him. All right. Let me. I need to get my photos ready because I'm going to send. Um, I talk about four different pictures that um, are some of my favorites, and I'm going to send them to Kat as we talk about them. And I'm going to have her describe the pictures to you guys, Dope. because I think, especially with his work, the a first impression and a, a first way of seeing his pictures is sometimes, 
it, it's easily the most visceral like response that you're going to get to his work and i find that interesting so i want to see i want to see how you respond to his pictures and and how you describe them because they're probably i've i've been looking at these pictures for years and years of my life so i have much different views on them than probably you would for seeing them the first time so yeah anyway all right okay so right, before right. we get I'm started fucking ready. i gotta Pop that beer. <laughs> I'm gonna grab. Uh, right. I'm gonna grab a, a piece of kettle corn, just one piece. A piece of that corn. <laughs> okay, so today I am covering my favorite photographer, and possibly just my straight up favorite artist of all time, Joel Peter Witkin. Joel, or Joey, as his family called him, has spent his life behind a camera capturing exquisite beauty in death, disfigured, intersex individuals, dwarves, amputees, the malformed, Siamese twins, severed parts of corpses, both animal and human, fetuses, cut-off heads, self-tortures, fetishes, and many, many more. In Joel Peter Witkin's book, Gods of Earth and Heaven, he makes a call to potential models who might fit his, quote, artistic requirements, stating in the call for erotic contortionists, boot corset and bondage fetishes, all manners of extreme visual perversions, anyone bearing the wounds of Christ, anyone claiming to be God, God. This sounds like I love that he, call, those... he calls for God to be a part of his. Yes. <laughs> well, it kind of sounds anyone like claiming of to my... be God or God. <laughs> uh, 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 stigmata? Anybody? Stigmata? Stigmata? Yeah. Stigmata? <laughs> it does sound like kind Nearly. of like the munches that I've been to before, though. You know, like mm-hmm. all those people that meet up online and they're like, we're going to get together and do some weird shit. And you get together and there's like 30 people all doing or like expressing to like really respectable people like in like full leather get up and like with all their tools and things just nicely sharing like what they like with people yes. like in a calm it's not like all you imagine yeah. like a big old sex fest it's like people like sharing it over i some, like this know, do chicken. you like this <laughs> let's do this together you want to see what i got i got this on this website yeah. <laughs> how, how unlike what i thought it would be it would be anyways anyways it's nerdy sex. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sex nerds are the best. With Chinese food. Yeah. <laughs> oh, all that MSG. Yeah. All that before, all right. too. Oh, that's awful. It's the worst idea. Unless you're <laughs> into, like, you know, poo-poo play, then I don't see the, the instinct see to there. go for Chinese food. I see what you did Yeah, there. you like that? You like that? <laughs> Anyway, (laughs) nearly all of Joel's photos are in black and white, often gelatin silver prints manipulated further by hand during the development process. And usually they have overlapping images as well. His techniques include scratching the negative, bleaching or toning the print, and using a hands-in-the-chemicals printing technique. Apparently, this experimentation began after seeing a 19th century ambrotype of a woman and her ex-lover who had been scratched from the frame. His art tends to contain hints of themes of classical art and Renaissance paintings that you would find in the greatest museums. Witkin is also known to weave religious themes throughout his work. Inspirations from Picasso, Balthus, Goya, Velasquez, and Miro reappear in his dramatic stage scenes over and over again, which he creates with impressive detail and very caring hands. 
Though he manipulates dead humans and animals in his art, it is never done with any hint of disrespect. There is a love and admiration in each photo, and I think that's why I'm so drawn to his work. Joel Whitkin's photos always make me feel like he's giving those who have passed an eternal celebration of their death, or those that have different, like, disfigured parts of their bodies as well. It's always in an honoring way. It is never exploitative or anything, in, in my eyes, obviously. Mm-hmm. Just as we all... Um, must be brought into this life we must also leave it we take and share endless photos of our living lives but after we die we are hidden in the ground and forever when we are thought of it is with a sheen of sadness death is almost never celebrated even though it is as natural as breathing and is typically disassociated with our memory even though every living thing must experience it guy vlasdell writes in an essay at the end of joel peter whitkin's book gods of earth and heaven that the book thrusts you into quote a human afterworld, one that comes before or after death of this world, a place where the spirits of the dead live on by sitting as works of art for their portraits, descending into our moment and then returning always to their identical selves. Through his photography, Joel Peter Whitkin dares the viewer to not appreciate these often looked over individuals. He dares you to ignore them, to pretend they don't exist, to cast them out of thought and memory after gazing into their sometimes lifeless eyes. Today, society spends much of its time ignoring the living individuals who don't fit the standard mold of beauty or shying away from death because both tend to make people feel uncomfortable. Joel Peters' art demands that you look at them, see them beyond your average perception, love them, smile at them, and indeed be uncomfortable by them if you must, anything but ignore them. He Mm -hmm. said, quote, God doesn't make mistakes. If a person is physically different, that difference is part of a masterpiece. I just oh I I, I, I like that. <laughs> the author and oh I'm gonna butcher it and Berlo 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 that's correct once remarked about Joel's art quote to step into Joel Peter Whitkin's world we must discard the collection of preju- of prejudices that we that have shaped our vision so that like Dante following Virgil we can start our journey into another realm. Step into the darkness. Anyone wanting to venture into it will need to use a compass. Pick up the right clues and ask the right questions. So when I first discovered uh, his work, I was in high school. I think I was either a sophomore or a junior. And it was, of course, in Mrs. Campbell's class, in art class. And she wanted us all to find an artist that we personally related to. And as soon as I found his work, I dived into it immediately and then of course became in doing the research about him just completely enthralled by his mind and what he's been through and the things he's seen and done and it's just he's always always stuck with me and from the time I can remember of being like a little kid I've always had an interest in the macabre and always been Mm -hmm. drawn to that that sort of you know that darkness that that visceral experience from art or from life or see being truly blown away by something and i i it doesn't bring it doesn't make you uncomfortable it makes you never never it it makes things more more grounded for you in reality exactly and i like i mean the first book i ever read on my own that i picked up that was like a, a actual chapter book i was in fourth grade and it was a biography of the iceman killer and i was obsessed it was about richard 
Kuklinski's life, and he was a horrible contract killer and just a downright biggest piece of shit. But I was fascinated because it, it was such a dramatic life, and it was such everything that he did was just so fucking intense. And I definitely got sent to the guidance counselor's office for reading that book at such an early age. I remember my mom being like, do you know you've been trying to get this girl to read forever? She has so much difficulty reading and you have been demanding that she read. She's finally found a book she has interest in. She's almost finished with the book and now you're going to be upset. And <laughs> she just went to bat for me so hard. It was just like, no, she's finally reading. You're going to let her read. And they're like, okay, but she's not doing a project on this book. Like, all right, fine. We can we can settle with that. But <laughs> so like from that moment on, the, I knew the children. <laughs> yeah. I got told I couldn't do a lot of projects. Like when I the we the class, I think it was like fifth grade. We were doing um, like projects. We were making collages of our favorite bands. And the first one um, I wanted to do was Bare Naked Ladies because I loved Bare Naked Ladies from a tiny age. <laughs> and they were like, no, you can't do Bare Naked Ladies. And then so I was like, OK, I'll do Bloodhound Gang. And my teachers didn't know. <laughs> the band and so they're like okay you can do bloodhound gang and so i started like i you know printed off pictures of like their album art and one of them is you know just a, a very very large naked man in a cardboard box and i thought that was hilarious so that picture went up on the club <laughs> and a whole <laughs> oh that's going up on the that's a good one that's a good one and brought that into school and got told that though no no that's not going to be presented to the class oh, no 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 Oh, no, 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 no. This is this is what happens when the closest sibling in age to you is like twelve years older than you are. Like you get you get weird, weird influences at an early age. He was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna take advantage of this to the utmost. <laughs> oh, he thought it was hilarious when I came home from school, so upset that they wouldn't let me present my project I worked so hard on. Oh God, so good. But oh my God. Oh, that went down hard. I'm just imagining you because I remember what you looked like, you know, and I'm mm -hmm. just imagining mm -hmm. you going just sad with your poster. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The only they took one. it away from me. Oh, they didn't let you keep it. <laughs> my teachers didn't know what to do with me. They had no idea. So many of them were just like, ah, that guy. Yeah, that one. I'd, like, come up to school just, like, in costumes all the time for no reason. Like, full oh, face yeah. paint. And just like, hey, I'm, everybody. I'm a totally normal person. Uh, Why I'm won't you be great. my friend? <laughs> friend. You friend. That's, why. <laughs> that's what was so hilarious. I'm clearly amazing. <laughs> that's, why, that's why it makes... Yeah, no, it's exactly why so she introduced funny. us. Like, I, I just, I, you know, I think that you'd really like her. <laughs> she wears two different kinds of socks. <laughs> so many ways she could have described the entity that is me and she went with two different colored socks i love it it's so perfect it's ideal i'm still obsessed with socks to this day so yeah yeah but anyway like yeah 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 from you know especially being like brought into the guidance counselor's office and i did not understand why my fascination in this book was odd or you know called for a trip to the guidance counselor and so i, I realized that oh this is not something everybody is into <laughs> this is this is a, something i keep i keep closed and hidden away and i'll just you know play with it behind you know closed doors that's fine this, and that sounds finally like, that sounds like that sounds filthy 
I need to hide the precious and touch the precious at home alone in the darkness. Well, that's what society has made me do. (laughs) Sitting in the darkness of your room listening to Bloodhound Gang. Just playing with, yeah, playing with bones. (laughs) Listening to The inevitable return of the great white dope. If I if I had a choice, I would have picked just just one man with a double bass. <laughs> but oh, so good. Or just a, like electric pipe organ. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so finding like an artist finally that was like not only embracing the macabre but like taking your inspiring you your perception of it to to an nth degree of of something i'd never expected to the amount of beauty that he finds in in certain things like that was just so eye-opening yes and and inspiring and it's just oh god it 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 was finally a way of somebody telling me it's not weird to find beauty here Mm-hmm. And that they're it that it, and not always, you know, not that I'm gonna like you know go out killing people and search for beauty or anything, or that that's the only place I find beauty, but that it is it is a place that can be explored further and on a different level. And I think, you know, it was the first time I felt welcome to enjoy that beauty instead of just the sadness, which is mm-hmm. how I now deal with like people who have passed in my own life and cope with death is, is finding that that beauty and you know when my grandmother passed away I it was one of the the most beautiful important you know just serene and incredible moments of my entire life and is all you know strange as that is but I hold that memory so freaking dear because she had been sick for a little bit she was back in um the hospice care center where her husband, my grandfather, had passed away, and it was it was evident that it was coming close to the time, and we had been spending all day with her. My sister had her kids, and it was finally like we were the kids were tired. We had gone out to eat dinner. My mom and my dad, who at the time were totally separated, but they were still both there with her. My dad grew up with, mm-hmm. you know, my mom's mom as well because they grew up together and so it, it, it was very much a family thing and my sister and I got back to the to the hospice you know hospital and we were I looked at her and I was like rags like I I, I can't I gotta go home you know it's I'm I we've been doing this all day I just I need a little break I need to go home and we'll come back tomorrow and as we're walking down the hall she's at the very last room at the end of the hall and as we're walking through we're like you know we're not we're not religious people so it wasn't prayers but we were giving little like as we were walking down the hallway, just love to each door that we passed and just, mm-hmm. you know, sentimentally giving it. And we get to the door and my dad's on one side of my grandmother and my mom's on the other and they both have tears in their eyes. And mom looks at me and she's like, it's, it's happening. And so we, I've never run so fast in my entire life, ran down the hall, told the doctor, ran back so we could get back in time. And my sister was laying on one side of her in the bed, and I was laying on the other, and both of my parents were on either shoulder holding her hands. And my mom was singing to her the wedding, <laughs> the song that she and my grandfather danced to at their wedding. And it was peaceful and gorgeous and just 
amazing to be there with her. She wasn't alone and she was surrounded by her family that loved her so much and it, there was no struggle. And she, the last words she said were, was a quip to my mom. And it was just like the perfect ending of this beautiful woman's life in such a beautiful way that if I didn't have somebody like Joel Peter Witkin's art to tell me and allow me and give me that insight that it is okay to find the beauty, that moment, I don't think I would necessarily hold that memory the same way that I do now. I don't know if I would have been able to immediately see how unbelievably fortunate we all were to be in that moment with her to share that with each other that's something my mom my sister my father and I will always have together and I am utterly thankful that I was able to to still look back on that that memory the way I do and um yeah so thanks Joel for <laughs> for helping me find that beauty because I'm I'm very very thankful for that and I've yeah it's helped a lot in life. So, thanks. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> you, just, you, just, you just described, though, like, the, the, like, everybody's best hope of passing. Like, that you're surrounded and held and kind of walked through it. You know? You're mm -hmm. not alone. It was not... It was it was a movie, you know, scenario. It really was. It it, it doesn't almost feel real. No, man. <laughs> the, Life, lifetime, the funniest lifetime part. Lifetime don't have shit on you. Lifetime don't have shit on you. <laughs> oh. The funniest part was, like, she she looked at my mom and my she was like, egg. And my mom, oh. they had, she had, like, a scrambled egg there. And so my mom thought she was hungry. So she gave her a bite of egg. And she, you know, like, wiped her mouth afterwards. She's like, is that good, mom? Do you want any more? And she looked up at my mother with just, like, her, her perfect little mm face. Was just like, that was very nice, dear. But what I said was, ache. And she pointed to her arm. <laughs> and then she seized. And that was the last thing she said. It was just, like, a, another jab at my mom of, like, close, honey. But no, you're still wrong. <laughs> Oh. It was so perfect. I'm just like, Egg. oh, that was of course, of course, her last words. And it, like, if you knew the family, that's not a bad thing. Like, I know that might sound like, oh, that's what she must have been so judgmental against my own no, mother. But it no, wasn't no, like no. that. It wasn't like that at all. Oh, so funny. That's good. okay. So moving on. Oh. <laughs> we find it funny. Anyway. I love it. All right. So I've got. I'm going to start sending, I'm going to send you the first picture because oh, I have a right three, on, I have a three-way tie for favorite out of his pictures. And the first one okay. I'm sending to you, I think this is my ultimate, this is the one I always keep coming back to. Um, it's called, excuse me, beer burp, Anna Akhmatov, who was a, a Russian writer. And um, there are obviously stories. He's got a very intricate idea of what every picture tells. It tells a vivid story, but he doesn't always tell that story to the viewer. And I think that's I love that because it, it makes it. Um, well, you can you can take, you know, your, your own, own interpretation. You, exactly. Yeah, exactly. He's 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 telling a very specific story, but we're not always privy or led into that. You know, that story all the time. So this is the first one I just sent sent to you. This one was taken in 1998. 
Anna Akhmatov. Where does he get these pieces from? I mean, he's like 80-something years old, so he's been doing, he's been collecting stuff for I'm talking about the bodies. Oh, yeah, I'll get into those. I'll get, I'll get into that. I thought you were talking about, like, the clock and stuff. Okay, so, so describe the picture. What do you see? Okay. So upon upon looking, it's black and white. So it's, and you can tell there's there's a vignette to it. So it kind of it it it, it seems to me that it grasps almost like an old an old Polaroid film or like an old like thirty five millimeter like. All of his pictures are taken on film. Yeah, uh, and they're always film. Yeah, there's a lot of grain and a lot of distress in just like the aesthetic, but the subject is an arm, gracefully. And now it's a separated arm leaning against a pile of beautifully placed grapes next to a small little uh, marble-looking statue. It looks like the statue of... It, the statue, I don't know the name of it, but it's a, it, it's a famous... It's the woman with no arms and no head. I don't know the name the of the breasts, statue either, but, but it's, it's a very miniature, famous picture. It's a picture, miniature yeah. of it. And so this arm is, is draped then, so it, the elbow hits the table and the forearm comes up and rests over an old wooden clock uh, with an analog face. And it has, it's like the fingers are placed in a very delicate and, you know, peaceful way. And almost, almost an, ele- yeah, an elegant, an elegant, delicate and elegant and peaceful. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's just floral garnishes around um, in the artwork, something beyond that. So, uh, so that is what I see. Yeah. It always, like, it's not, obviously, I already said the name of it is Anna Akhmatov, but it always, it, it always reminds me of, like, the hands of time, especially the way just his, the, the individual's arm and hand who is in, in this picture is just perfectly, the, I love the way it's positioned. The fingers, everything of it, it's just, it is delicate and, and gorgeous and just, yeah, I always come however, back to this picture is probably being my favorite. she is giving this symbol, whatever that is. It's like the okay, but what they do in the pictures. Remember that fate that. Fight? Oh yes, yeah the the yeah the balls staring at the balls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> that's fantastic. Okay, and then it doesn't uh, make me second, by any means. I tend to the, enjoy the. Yeah, I don't think any of them are necessarily going to make you uncomfortable. Maybe maybe the last one, maybe a little, but probably not. So this one is called "Woman Once a Bird." This was taken in Los Angeles in 1990. How how recent they are. I don't know if they were actually taken there or not. That's where it says on all the websites that that's like the location of it, but I'm not sure. I don't maybe that's the location of where like the original is now. I don't think so, but I don't know. Because a lot of the like corpses and things he could not get in the United States. Well, that and so describe. I'm surprised that woman wants a bird. It, there's not some kind of law against it, but I like even if they're donated, there is in the United States. There there's is a lot in the United States. Yeah. So this so, is woman wants a bird. So it's it's like an antique portrait uh, with like paint. The edges are almost look like they're dry brushed and painted. 
Yeah, uh, that's the hands and the chemicals and like um, techniques I was talking about earlier, how he would hand oh. manipulate the negatives as they were developing in the solution. He would go in and like, and gelatin a lot is used to like give certain, or um, sometimes Vaseline is used to give certain like glossier, um, you know, effects in, in things. And so that's a lot of what he uses is the gelatin and stuff. So it's, yeah, it's really cool manipulation. It's all done by hand to make it even more intricate and beautiful. Anyway, yeah. sorry, go on. No, 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 it's good. And so you, you're you're seeing, I'm seeing, almost looks like a woman's body. You're looking behind her, you're looking at her back, and she's wearing like a cinching corset made of metal. It's beautiful, kind of comes to a point. It's very, it's like, it's very silver and, and, and futuristic looking, if you will. But the rest of her is naked, and she's sitting on a bench of sort, and you don't you don't see her arms or her calves or anything. You just kind of see her, her bottom, her waist, and then as it goes up her back, it, there are slashes for I would assume where bird wings would be. We're almost like if you were to rip them out, or if you were to have them surgically removed, that that's where they would have been attached mm -hmm. to your body. Um, no hair, but it looks like there's a lot of cuts and like manipulations to the to the skull itself and the scalp all skins there you can't see the arms though everything's it's almost like she's hugging herself and bringing and, i think and, and yeah either that or the arms or are completely detached yeah could be and so that is what i see yeah all right I love that one. I don't know. It's so it also reminds me. I know it's you know the the cuts in the back are are where the wings would would have been, but it also reminds me of like um you know those like giant standing violins, and like the 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 cuts that are in the sides of them. Are you done with the harps? Like the no, not a harp. Like a like a like even a standing bass has those like cuts in the side where yes. the air flows out. Yeah, the cellos have them too. They all there's yes, I yeah, yeah, what yeah. They're yeah. Called. I forgot what they're called. It's not but. just the hole in the center, the ones that are on the side. I, I don't know what they're called either, but I, it's gorgeous. A place to let it breathe, right, right behind her lungs. All right, and then the third for first place tie of three comes story from a book. Okay. Okay, that's that's interesting. That's fascinating. So mm -hmm. I can describe what I'm seeing and then I can and then my interpretation of it. So because it's it's a man's head, his chin and his neck are kind of elongated, sitting on the top of an old book. He has a a a, a simple black like blind around his eyes and a plate with fruit and apples on it. And then there seems to be a metal object attaching the plate to the back of his neck. Now, like a handle, like a handle. So what I'm imagining here, what I'm seeing, especially with that title, because it's kind of brilliant, is the idea of, you know, keeping by, by, by closing the eyes, you're keeping everything inside. And the only thing that can come out is of the mouth. And that can be the knowledge and everything that's feeding in from the top. And you just pour it out. Mm, I like that interpretation. I've never thought of it that way. I like that a lot. Like you're pouring. Yeah, it's it kind right of like out. the top of the skull, I believe, is removed. So it's like a bowl, like full, type full thing. To so the brim if because the the head and the neck is detached from a body, there is no body. It's just a book with a head 
like Kat said, rested on it along the chin and the neck. And I think the bones must have been broken to get that. To get that angle, yeah. That angle. And, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's really cool. It reminds me of, like, still life photos or paintings that are done constantly that are in, you know, like, you see a bowl of fruit or a bowl of this. And it's Impressionism. A bowl is now a human, a human head. Impressionists and impressionism. Yeah. All right, and as close... So this would be this would take like my second favorite picture because all of three of those are like all tied for first place. So this one is called testicle stretch with a possibility of a crushed face. All right, I'm taking a sip off the beer. Yeah, it's very literal. <laughs> There's no interpretation. Oh my god. Yeah. This was one of the ones I showed, and, and so yeah, Mrs. Campbell was just like when I did my presentation <laughs> oh, for this. No. People literally left the room and were like, "I'm done here," and she's like, "Yeah, you don't have to come back to class." She literally let people leave because of my presentation. So, so yeah, testicle stretch with a possibility of a crushed face. This was taken in New Mexico, 1982. So. It shows the side profile body of a man laying on a diagonal plank, his head at the base of the diagonal and his feet at the highest point. Um, a, a rope is attached to the man's genitals at a quite a, it's got quite a grip on there because it's on a pulley system. It is definitely stretched it is very stretched um it kind of it kind of looks like a little russian doll when you look at it from the side because there's oh, it black, does like little like it looks like a little like a little porcelain doll of some sort maybe anyways yes, it's on a system. Yep. and at the bottom of the other end of the rope uh are looks looks to me about it looks like that could be about 100 pounds 100 pounds mm, yeah 100, 150 i don't know those look like some pretty big weight weight bells and there's um, multiple of them yeah and they are dangling over the neck and face of the corpse, angling down I think, towards the floor. And there's... I think this blocks. dude might be alive. I think this is one I of the fetish ones. Feel like, I feel like if he is alive, that would make sense, because he's also wearing a mask to cover his face. Mm-hmm. And well, that he uh, Joel Peterwork can uses a lot of masks, so okay. I wouldn't say that's necessarily an indication that he's alive, but he does... Yeah, this, this looks like a fetish... It takes, uh, photo and and I think the in the purpose behind this sort of fetish would be the, the idea of it's like a personal release and you have to focus and you have to bring your mind and teleport to an entirely different place. There's, your brain reacts to this kind of pain in such a thrilling response that everything becomes very clear and you, and because if you panic yeah. in any way, it's all gonna go bad. You're gonna get the f crushed face. Yeah, and then and he's he's tied with black rope. Mm-hmm. He's tied with black rope to the to the plank, and it's you got like a brick wall behind it. There are cinder blocks that the plank is kind of like rested and tilted up on. Everything is very dungeony, dark feeling to it. Yeah. So you've got like the first one that is very delicate with the grapes and the statue and the clock and the arm, and then you know you kind of digress into full like torture porn <laughs> yeah the torture porn that that does feel different than the previous three photos doesn't it it does it it's yes yes so also because it's the first time we've seen uh, a whole body in 
these serious Very books. true. So. And he does do a lot of work with living models as well. It's not just the dead. But. <gasps> Excuse me. So many beer burps. My God. <laughs> so all of four of these pictures hold um, all the usual hallmarks of Joel Peter Wickens' work. Tone gelatin silver prints. Usually with a white border, the backdrop almost impossibly black with white humans or at least human remains at the center, mimicking classic art or everyday objects with obscurity. However, like all good art, each photo brings a vastly different emotion out of me and makes me really analyze what it is that I'm reacting to in each picture. Even though they can be seen or thought of as grotesque, not a single one of his pictures has ever bothered me in that specific way. I find them incredibly honoring of the people he photographs, even with like the testicle stretch, like that guy, he's not going to just like ask some dude off the street, like, hey, let me do this to your dick and balls. Like he's, he finds somebody that does this anyway and is bringing it into an artistic form. You know, like this is, this is something that is already happening. Let me now put it as a work of art and honor what you're doing. And so it's not just that dark dungeony basement where you feel like you have to hide away to get your rocks off. You know, you can, this can be seen as something beautiful, even though it upsets other people. And sometimes for people upsetting other people with their sex, that'd be sex offenders. (laughs) I offend people with my sex. I was thinking at the very least, (laughs) consent would be the the biggest hope here. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. And that is, you always, there's never, the only people who ever react, like, negatively towards his work are people on the outside who view it. Like, you know, society that doesn't quite get it. It's never the people who are in the photos. Mm. Uh, So, yeah. So, um, I find them, like I was saying, incredibly honoring of the people he photographs and brilliantly put together. In the documentary Wiccan and Wiccan, a woman named Anne Millett Gallant, who is an art historian, speaks as she is being painted from head to toe in white paint in preparation for a photo shoot she's about to do with Joel. This is her second time modeling for him. As an art historian, Millet Ann Millet studies the representation of disability in art and work of disabled artists. She's written a lot about Joel Peter Witkin's work and said that she, quote, the short, <laughs> the short answer is that I want to put my body where my mouth is, so to speak. Anne herself is disabled. I'm not quite exactly sure what her full disability is, and there's no way I'm going to try and even approach trying to guess what it is. But what I can tell you for sure is that she is a congenital amputee, meaning that neither of her arms properly um, developed during gestation. So she has no hands on either arm, and her right arm is slightly longer than her left and that she experienced an accident in 2007 that resulted in traumatic brain injury, muscle contraction, and loss of memory. She also has, like, a slight slur to her speech and, like, very faint facial deformity. Mm-hmm. She remarked, quote, Having your body painted white, you don't feel naked. I feel like a figure in a work of art rather than exploited in any kind of way. Joel goes on to tell her a few minutes later, your body is very, very wonderful looking. It's very emotional and it's right for this. Beautiful. So as a side note, just now you've heard me say like white a whole bunch, but because um, like white paint, white people, white, you know, body parts. But because Joel Peter Witkin's work is shot almost entirely on black and white film and just about all of his subjects are white or light-skinned, this does not mean that he thinks only white or light skin is beautiful in any way. It's because the contrast of the blackest blacks in the background with the white 
or with the light skin in the foreground gives off the dramatic effect that he's going for. He often, like I was just talking about, covers his models in white paint to further this effect and make it even more prominent. Just wanted to get that out of the way. Yeah. So, how does a boy from Brooklyn grow up to make a living playing with dead bodies and being praised for it? Well, even before birth, Joel Peter Whitkin's life was rife with death and misfortune. He was initially one of three triplets, but his sister died in the womb, leaving him and his brother Jerome to be twins who were quite ill for the first few months of their lives. In the documentary Wicked and Wicked, Joel talks about a memory he holds, saying, I was in the womb, and there was another entity besides myself, my brother, and I, and I was looking out of this glaucomic film, and I saw another glaucomic womb, and another entity there, which I knew was a girl. And as I was communicating to this girl somehow, both of our hands were on that surface, that skin, and then suddenly, she and that hole of the womb went away into the darkness, and I knew Ooh. that I had experienced the end of that person's life somehow. So in a sense, I experienced death before I knew life. So the brain is a mysterious and magic place. So even though I probably should, I honestly can't say that I don't necessarily believe him entirely. Like even if it is just a constructed memory over time birthed from the mind of an artist, it's a real memory for him. It's something he holds okay. as a memory. You know, that's good enough for me. I, I'm not necessarily saying, yes, he absolutely has a memory from the womb and watched his sister die in the womb and slink away into darkness. I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that. I do, however, think that this is something he holds as a truth for himself. And yeah, it's, that's good enough. So either way, barely out of the womb and already life had not been an easy adventure for either Wick and Twin. The boys were born in Brooklyn, New York in sept on September 13th, 1939, woo, happy birthday, <laughs> to a Jewish father and a Roman Catholic mother who could not Ooh. reconcile their religious differences and split when the boys were still young. They also have an older sister, but she is almost never talked about. Jerome is barely ever talked about, his twin brother in anything. Like, it took 70 years for Joel's, like, biography anywhere to state that he had a twin brother. <laughs> and you can almost never find you it's almost impossible to find his sister's name online it's ridiculous it's, it's very odd but yeah well do you, do you think um, so is it is it because did, did it, was he close with his family after you know his grow to fame i'm sure he was he a bit ostracized it's very I'll, I'll get into it in a little bit there's there's a lot of family drama and just life drama i think artist drama <laughs> in the family so um his jerome his twin brother is a extremely well-known and very um incredible painter he's, he's a marvelous artist and he painted division street which is about the, the scene when his father left with suitcases in hand and his mother red-faced throwing dishes at the door and there's like a, a picture of him like cuddled up on on a chair just trying to you know get away from it. all of jerome's work is is also dark but in a, in a very different way it's him exploring his own depression and things he saw in world war ii like he described a scene where he was on a train there was clearly a girl who got on the train who's clearly running away and she had like an instrument case and they were like every she he was talking about how like everybody on the train it was so obvious that she was running away and everybody was just like hoping that they could get through each of the five stops and then 
they they got to the last stop the train starts to pull away and like there's a sigh of relief because they're about to get you know this girl to freedom basically even though nobody knew her she she wasn't being helped by anybody and the train starts to pull away and then the train stops and people come on the train and pull her off and her instrument case busts open and there's just all of these clothes and things and he knew the whole time you know he's like well she's gonna be dead either shot or hung in the next five to ten hours there's nothing we could do and so there's a lot of pain there there's just in both of these men's lives they've both seen and been through a lot and so their art reflects that and so their their sister describes um in their early teens jerome began to draw quote like an old master and especially with chalk she recalled a time when he drew the comic book character joe palooka and all of the other kids his age and even adults started to call him a genius because it was perfect. Jerome himself thinks that this is probably when the divide began between he and Joel. The sister uh, even wrote a poem about it one time she came home for the holidays. I think she said it was like Thanksgiving. And she ended up wrote it, writing a poem called The Other about Joel because all of the family's attention was on Jerome and his talents and Joel kind of got, you know, shunted mm. to the side. And however, though, this was the time when Joel started to develop his own talents behind a camera. So I think kind of being ostracized a little bit pushed him into his niche even a little more. Yeah. And Joel reminisces. He was able to explore that part of himself himself individually. Yeah. Yeah. And like, he, I don't know, I don't think either one really benefited. Like, I don't think they liked being twins. And Joel reminisced about a time when his father came to visit and they looked through a newspaper together and Joel was enveloped by the pictures he saw and remembers this to be the first time that he had a feeling that he wanted to be a professional photographer and more specifically a combat photographer photographer wow Joel claims that there was another very formative moment that solidified his vision as a later artist in which he witnessed a car accident outside the family home he said it happened on a Sunday when my mother was escorting my twin brother and me down the steps of our tenement where we lived we were going to church. While walking down the hallway to the entrance of the building, we heard an incredible crash mixed with screaming and cries for help. The accident involved three cars, all with families in them. Somehow, in the confusion, I was no longer holding my mother's hand. At the place where I stood at the curb, I could see something rolling from one of the overturned cars. It stopped at the curb where I stood. It was the head of a little girl. I bent down to touch the face, to speak to it, but before I could touch it, someone carried me away. So, just a little boy, just a little girl's head starts rolling towards you. And instead of, you know, in, instead of being enveloped in the pain and the sadness and the chaos that was happening, he, you know, Joel immediately saw, like, the beauty in it in a way that probably a child shouldn't. But that stuck with yeah. him for his entire life. Yeah. Sounds like this, the, 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 the sure beginnings of a possibly a serial killer, yet it went in a different yep. way. It did. It seems, Thank yeah. God. Thank God. Like that's, so, a perfect, Jerome, that's a perfect backstory right there. Right? It, yeah, I don't know. I've, it's it's interesting. It is very interesting. And so Jerome ended up going away for high school. They were they were raised very Catholic and like went to Catholic school and they, it was very religious household. And Jerome ended up getting accepted to an arts college. So he had gone away or uh, high school. Excuse me. And he had gone away and he had come back and he 
um, had become a very well-developed painter by this point, and he asked Joel to accompany him to Coney Island so that they could go and he wanted Joel to take pictures of the people in the freak show at Coney Island. And Joel said that he absolutely fell in love with the woman who was the star of David, uh, dancer, and that he was, as he was taking pictures of her, it was his first time, like, falling in love with somebody. And he also photographed Albert Alberta, who was an intersex individual who was supposedly split down the middle from, from head to toe. As, you know, one half of the left half, like, female, the right half male. And... This has a lot of, like, American Horror Story vibes to it, doesn't it? I mean, it is a freak show, so... Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I had to take a... I had to take a bite of donut. I need some... I need some sugar boost. <laughs> I was... So Joel said, quote, It was a wonderful experience. And by that time, the photographs I made of the Star of David Dancer and Albert Alberto weren't a kid's photographs of an event. They were something that I had, I had built into me. I had really found my medium, and the medium was photography. So he was also young. You know, they were only in high school at this point. And they were, like, especially the picture he took of Albert Alberta, um, very sexual in nature. And not like, they weren't doing anything sexual, but they were just, like, laying on this, like, um, chase lounge, basically, and, like, a flimsy silk, like, robe with very ridden up... And, you know, uh, it, there was, there, like he said, there, it was not a child's photo shoot at mm -hmm. all. At just 30... Very Titanic. Oops, sorry. I was just thinking how very Titanic-esque on the Shea Lounge. <laughs> yes, very. <laughs> so at 21, Joel enlisted voluntary, vol voluntarily into the army in 1960 as a photograph of... Wow. I'm going to start over this sentence. My God. <laughs> At 21, Joel enlisted voluntarily in the army in 1960 as a photographer and even ended up getting top secret clearance. Unfortunately for Joel's desires, he never did end up seeing any combat due to scheduling constraints. He spent his military time at Fort Hood in Texas and was mostly in charge of the public information. Wow. In charge of public information and classified photos. In 1967, he became the official photographer for City Walls Incorporated. After leaving the military, Joel attended Cooper Union in New York, where he studied sculpture, achieving a Bachelor's of Arts degree in 1974. He then went on to earn a Master of Fine Arts degree from the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Mm. Even after studying many other forms of art, Joel knew photography was where his heart truly lay. However, to take any kind of social or moral risks to take the kind of social and moral risks of using cadavers as a form of art, Joel had to leave the United States and go to Mexico in order to get past restrictive laws. Oh, okay, there it is. He, he did talk about a time when he was working at um, a forensic hospital, and he saw this young woman. He said he was like 20, 21 at the time, the woman was, and she was naked, about ready to be have her autopsy done. And he was... This was the first time he really like tapped into it and the 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 beauty of that what he could photograph with corpses and the mm -hmm. the doctor there was like photograph her you know go on do, you know do it it's fine just you know take some pictures of her if you want like more artsy pictures not just the ones he was supposed to be taking for his job and he's like i can't do that her family's outside like waiting outside hor horrified right now sobbing they just lost their their child she's quite young and 
he like had that brief constraint for a moment and he said it was because she was an innocent like at, at right at the moment of birth and at death you are an innocent and those are the only two times in your life that you are an innocent and he said he felt he felt odd at that point like he wasn't ready to yet and then eventually found that in that innocence he he could really dive into that even more that's fascinating <laughs> so it is of no surprise that because of the transgressive nature of his art, Joel has been shocking the public for over 50 years, and many have called his work exploitative. However, mm. I am more apt to listen to and believe the people who have actually worked with him or been a part of his art when they say they feel respected and like they are being presented as works of art and beautiful. Right. I, I believe them way more than the people who get turned off by his imagery. Now, those are people just having you know, negative reactions to, to art, which based happens the, all based the time. Based on their personal experiences and perceptions exactly. of how things should be. And yet you actually have these intersex individuals, you know, you've got these disfigured or, you know, whatever individuals who are like, I feel fucking seen for the first time in my life. And like, I am forever, my image uh, on this earth that everybody has told me is wrong is now forever going to live as a work of art, which is, I just, I find beautiful. So Joel has shows and has had shows all over the world. And the most recent one being in 2021 titled Journeys of the Soul. One of his more interesting, though, in my opinion, of his shows was in 2014 with his twin brother, Jerome, called Twin Visions. They shared their work side by side for the first time in their entire lives. I don't think either brother would have benefited. Either bro I don't think they really benefited from being a twin like they're. Their growth as human beings didn't benefit from it. They don't. They didn't like it. Like they talked about how their their mother used to instead of because they were identical, they look so different now. Like they barely look alike. But when they were kids, they looked identical. So instead of, you know, getting it wrong, she would just say, uh, "Joey, Joey, Joel, Joey, Joey, Jerry, Joey, Jerry, Jerry, Joey." Like just would say both of their names every time she was addressing one, just so she didn't get it wrong. So both the boys felt like they were being forced to be the same person, being dressed the same and everything, but they knew from a very early age that they were separate entities and very distinctive individuals. And so I think because they were forced to be one for so long that they both retaliated against that and definitely Joel more than Jerome. He really, I, I, I just, yeah, I don't think he liked it at all. <laughs> And he, uh, he even said in the documentary that he was like, I never felt any particular urge to be close with my brother. We just happened to share an apartment for nine months. Oh, and they're <laughs> twins. Twins, I yeah. Never, that's, a, that's a situation that I, I, you never hear much about. Two twins who don't like each other. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, you really don't. You don't hear and that And even story. though the brothers aren't really that close, they do have, they have led very, and they have led very different lives. Um I don't think either of their art would have had the same gravitas that it does without the other. You know, I think they needed each other to push their art to where it is, but I, I don't think they emotionally benefited from it, but their art definitely benefited mm -hmm. from that competition. And it's hard oh, to I say see. if either brother... I yeah. Because yeah. I, I, it's hard to say if either of them would have pushed themselves to the limits they did if they hadn't been even slightly even if it was subconsciously, you know, competing with each other. Especially when Jerome at such an early age was just like, he's brilliant, he's the most talented artist, he's like, look at this kid, he's so amazing, and Joel was just like, meh, we'll put him on the back burner. 
Yeah. Like, especially after being compared one-to-one -one for so long, and then all of a sudden, after one drawing, they're now two incredibly separate individuals in people's minds. There's the artist, there's Jerome the artist, and then there's, there's Joey. You know, like, that is very interesting. So, Joel lives today in Albuquerque, and he's still making art. He's one of the leading photographers of our time, famous for his provocative and controversial works exploring death, religion, myth, and allegory, and will go down as one of the biggest thought provokers in modern art. He's given life and death a beauty that they lacked before his vision, and I have probably made it painfully obvious by this point, but he is one of my greatest art idols. And please, if you have any interest, dive into his art, be taken by it, explore what it is that makes you feel certain things, not just the surface reactions. He's a brilliant artist, and I feel lucky to be able to feel as connected with his art as I do. And even better that I get to be alive when he's alive. You know, all of our, so many of artists, you know, you, you get to look at their work and be like, man, it would have been cool to be in that time period. And I really feel like very fortunate. Even though I'm never never going to meet the guy or anything, but it, it, I do feel fortunate to, to well, share a timeline I, with him. I suppose I understand that, too, because by the time I discovered Edward Gorey, he had already passed. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. So I've seen things come out, you know, of Joel Peter Witkin as I've lived. There have been new things that come out as time goes on, which is, is a really cool thing to experience. It is. There's something, there's something Jerome said in one of the documentaries, too. He was talking about how, like, you know, when people talk about artists they always say how great is you know um van gogh how amazing is his art if they're alive even though he's been dead for century you know they he's a his art lives on with us it's the in legacy. our moment it we interpret it we live with it we deal with it we think about it now in our living memory in our time in this in this moment and so they they end up living as well isn't their art great no it wasn't their art great it is mm -hmm. and i think yeah i think i hope for both brothers that that's how people remember them too so yeah yeah that's wonderful man i mean i i, I appreciate like all the extra detail to it pertaining to the family and the dynamic itself such a vastly different characters we've covered yeah when there was literally uh there's literally a moment when i wrote that uh that there was truly nothing dramatic about the man's life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is perfect, though. Because that's the thing. It's like, with Ed Edward Gorey, all of that just lived inside of him. With Joel Peter Wicken, it was literally from before birth with his mm -hmm. triplet dying. And then seeing a little girl's head rolling towards him. So, you know, like, it, it's just... There were precise moments that, that led and influenced this, this type of work. And he has done a lot of um, imagery with deceased fetuses and things like that. And that's, that's been some of the, like, what people are upset of, uh, the most about. People tend but, to have a strong reaction when it involves children and other people's bodies. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. That was Edward Gorey and Joel Peter Witkin. Yeah. We that did was excellent. It. Yeah, that was wonderful. I know that uh, over the next couple weeks, we we kind of sometimes like throw things up in the air, but I do believe the the topic of aliens, possibly another cryptid episode, uh, some haunted stories, and and delightful fall goodness is is going to be up on your on your doorstep. So, oh yeah, oh, oh yeah, in the airwaves of your car, <laughs> on your brain waves, on your brain waves.
Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us, you guys. We're so appreciative to have you here, as always. And if you ever want to get a hold of us, you want to send us your own stories, if you've got any creepy ghost stories or creepy things that have ever happened to you that you want to be talked about on the show, please email us. Reach out to us. Send us your creepy shit. We love, we love it. We love creepy shit. Yeah. So you can get us at contagiouscuriositypod at gmail.com. Send anything you'd like there. You can also find us on Instagram at Kat and Laney. That's K-A-T-A-N-D-L-A-N-E-Y. Uh, I also um, monitor up on Twitter. So that's a simple Cat and Laney as well. And um, website's going to be dropping pretty soon. We are arranging a pretty dope photo shoot with a close friend of mine. Um, so we're hoping to collaborate and Woo-woo. bring some authenticity to our own space. Um, That's lots right. Of, lots of prospects, lots of ideas and, and hopes down the pipeline. Don't forget, we also have our Reddit community. Both Laney and I moderate that. So, um, Yeah, find us. It's Contagious Curiosity. Come and join the fun. Eat a bit of time. Learn new things. Goes. Yeah. One step at a time. Like always, we try and remind you guys, this is grassroots as it comes. We are doing this from the ground up, teaching ourselves as we go. We are not professionals. This is a passion project that we love doing. We love bringing to you guys. The feedback has been awesome. Love it. And all of our friends in Australia, hey, what's up? We, we what's see up? you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks yeah. for listening, guys. We oh, love, I love you. love that. Yeah, I love you guys. Thank you. You guys are into some creepy, weird shit, and I love it. I love that. <laughs> it seems, it, it really does seem like like the biggest, like, true crime podcast and creepy podcast, like, their biggest fan base is in Australia. And you guys, yeah. like, thank you for, for finding us. And yeah, we, we see you, and we love you so much. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, guys. All right. Goodbye. Cheers. Cheers. The first chainsaw was designed by German orthopedist Bernard Hein in 1830. He called it the osteotome, Greek for bone cutter.